So we're in this Advent series, and it's a unique Advent series, and I was actually thinking about this today in that um, rather than doing the traditional kind of uh, joy, peace, love, hope sermons that are normally associated with Advent, we decided that we would go a different route, and we were going to do this non-traditional style of looking at these biographies of different people in the Bible and seeing how God came to them. But what I realized today is that these topics actually totally align with the traditional Advent series. So Bree started us off with Hagar, and Hagar ended up finding joy in her brokenness. Last week, we talked about Hannah and her desperation, and ultimately, Hannah came to a place of deep peace. God came to her in her desperation and made her peaceful as she surrendered herself. And then tonight, if there's any teaching from a biographical standard or a biographical perspective of hope, it's about St. Peter. Peter Peter was the epitome of, of what shouldn't have been a great leader. And yet, God so came to him and restored him uh, that it, he transformed the world. He, he became such a great man. And in that, I trust that each of you, whether tonight you're just in a sweet spot, holidays are great, or you feel like you're kind of coming apart at the seams, I want this message, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants this teaching to just provide hope, deep hope, this Advent hope that is unwavering and unshaking. So let me read the text for us from which we're going to draw, and we're going to be looking at a lot of different texts tonight in the, in the story account of Peter, but this text picks up right when Jesus is restoring Peter to ministry after he had denied him three times. So we'll begin in John uh, chapter 21, verse 1. John chapter 21, verse 1. It'll be up on the screens for you, too, if you don't have a Bible. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals and there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When he had finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord for the Lord's people. Let me pray for us. Father, you are the good shepherd and you feed the sheep through these sacred texts. Week by week, Christians across the globe gather around the Bible to hear from you, to respond to you, to be transformed by you. And tonight, here in the season of Advent, with our little baby church plant, we need hope. The world needs hope. For any father tonight who are unraveling at the seams, may the life of Peter be testimony to the glory and the power and the goodness of a very gentle God who knows exactly what to do with us in our confused and disoriented places. You are not concerned or afraid. You are not worried about the things that we are worried about. You are steadfast and true. And so plant deep seeds into the souls of your saints tonight, seeds that will blossom with glorifying hope an unwavering, unshaking hope that even in our most broken, shattered places, you restore and make us valuable and beautiful beyond our imagination and beyond our ability. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. I want to put a picture up here on the screen for us. Around the fifth century, the Japanese, they developed this particular form of alt art called kintsugi. Can you guys say that? Kintsugi. Kintsugi. It's fun to say. It's literally translated golden repair. Golden repair. Kin, golden, tsugi, repair. And so when a vase or a piece of pottery falls to the ground and is destroyed, shattered, rather than sweeping up the pieces and just throwing it all in the garbage, kintsugi masters, they carefully put each piece of pottery back together and to mend the fractures, they use gold. So the process restores these pieces not only for usage again, but it's stronger. And the value actually increases because of the gold with which these kintsugi masters use to mend the fractures. The gold scars, as you can see, from the breaks, they become a focal point of the overall beauty of the original piece. And this is what Advent is all about. Our world and our lives all of us, in some measure, are shattered. We are broken by sin. We are fallen on the hard, cold floor of this world. And God is truly the master potter, and we are truly the clay. But in our brokenness, Advent reminds us 
that the potter doesn't come and just sweep us off the floor and throw us into the garbage, doing away with us. And I think some of us feel that way tonight. I think many humans endure an unspoken grief that they feel like they are broken and worthless and just swept off into the garbage. But Advent reminds us that God became a man. God literally, the potter became the pot, so to speak, and was broken in our place. And Advent reminds us that the fractures of our souls and ultimately the fractures of the entire world, this broken creation that we live in, are mended not with gold, but through the life and the death and the resurrection, the spilled blood and the literal presence of God himself in the Holy Spirit brings together this reshaped, reformed creation. That's the end goal of this whole thing that we're doing. And Advent reminds us that our master will always come to restore us. He's ultimately and always and very intentionally working to restore the world, to make his creation and to make each of us, you and I, useful, stronger, more valuable, and ultimately those points where we felt the most fractured, the most ashamed, the most guilty, the most deeply failed. It's those fractures that ultimately highlight and make us the most beautiful in the work that he does. And there really is no greater character in the Bible to exemplify this than St. Peter. Peter had fallen. I'm going to walk us through his story now. Peter's life was literally in a moment shattered into a thousand pieces, and yet Jesus came to him and restored him. The story of Advent, God coming to us in restoration. And history actually goes on to show that Peter's value was immeasurably greater after he had fallen apart than it was prior to his falling apart. We first meet Peter fishing around the shores of Galilee, and he's with his brother Andrew. Now, like all Orthodox Hebrews of his day, Peter, his brothers, his people, they were looking for the coming of Meshechach, this, this Messiah. This, the, the Hebrews, they longed for this anointed Israeli king that was to come. And in the collective imagination of all the people, this king, when the Messiah was to come, he would finally overthrow these Roman occupiers who were in the promised land. And this Messiah would establish God's reign again throughout all of the land. You have to understand, Peter and his people were under the Romans, occupied by the Romans. And the Romans were this oppressive empire. They overtaxed, they lied, they subjugated the Jews, they put puppet governors and puppet kings over them. And the prophets in the Hebrew passages had always promised that there would be this king coming, and Peter in his mind, and all of his people really, when this king would come, they envisioned him as the Old Testament presented him, coming in on a war horse to conquer. Psalm 2, kiss the king, lest his wrath break out on you. This is what had shaped Peter's vision of this coming king. A mighty, conquering, dangerous, wrath-filled warrior. Now, Peter's brother Andrew was a devotee of this eccentric man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist kind of modeled himself after the ancient prophet Elijah, wearing camel hair and big long beard and eating locust legs out in the desert. He was actually a total weirdo. Um, and John the Baptist was being looked to as a possible messiah. 
And instead what John the Baptist did is he directly said, no, I am not the leader. I am not the Messiah, but he pointed to Jesus. And there's this incredible scene where one day Jesus comes walking into the, into the context of all these people. And John looks at him and says, behold, this is the sacrificial lamb who's going to take away the sins of the whole world. This is the Kintsugi master that's going to heal the fractures with his blood. That's what John said. And Andrew and Peter are listening to this eccentric prophet, John the Baptist, and they believe him. And so they turn to follow Jesus, and when they turned to follow Jesus, they believed. They believed with all of their heart that their lives were going to be healed, and the brokenness in their people was finally going to be mended. And what we all need to grasp tonight is that Peter's instinct about Jesus was right. Peter's instinct was right. He believed that he should leave everything and follow Jesus. He was spot on in that instinct, in that impulse, in that decision. What was off with Peter was his understanding of who Jesus actually was. Peter's understanding of Jesus was actually incomplete. And Peter had this ignorance about his own fallibility and his own weaknesses. He did not understand how fractured he was in his own being. And his expectation, this was the real deal with Peter, his expectation of how Jesus would establish his kingdom was utterly wrong. In his mind, he saw a warring, conquering, wrath-filled king bringing the Roman Empire to its knees to bow before him and finally kiss and pay homage. And that was the image that Peter had, and it was off. And it was these factors that culminated actually in Peter's shattering, in his fall. So as Peter began to follow Jesus throughout the Gospels, he journeyed with him, and he began to discover that this king, this Messiah, was not like any other king that had been seen in the world of men. Jesus, first of all, never lived above the people as all the other kings of men would do. Instead, Jesus got right into the dirt and the grime and the fray of all the fractured society around him. This king, rather than being lifted and high above and having all of his subjects beneath him, walked before them, in the midst of them, was befriending them. And for Peter, it was just, what is, what is happening? And rather than keeping the unclean, as an anointed king of Israel should certainly do, rather than keeping the unclean far away, the lepers and the sinful, Jesus would actually go to them and actually touch them. He would hold their faces in his hands and he would heal them in these moments. And Jesus not only welcomed strangers and non-Jewish people and immigrants, he not only welcomed them into his company, but he was hospitable towards them. And on certain occasions, non-Jewish people, Jesus would commend them for their faith above that of even the Jews. Roman centurions, soldiers, and taxpayers, Jesus would be like, your faith is great. And all the Jews would be listening in going, who, this is our Messiah. What, what, why are you commending these pagan dogs? Jesus would eat meals, which in their society was a symbol saying, I am one with this person. Jesus would eat meals with the offscouring of Peter's society. And so he identified with tax collectors and prostitutes. And to Peter's credit, this still did not diminish his allegiance to Jesus. Now, for a lot of people, Jesus was just too much. For a lot of Jews, Jesus was just too much. He's eating with tax collectors. He's hanging out with prostitutes. 
He's commending Roman centurions for their faith. And then Jesus, his teachings were so jarring, they were so radical, that there were many who began to follow him and just began falling away the more radical Jesus' teachings got. In John chapter 6, he lays out this somewhat, uh, oh, I don't know, it's, it's almost like, it sounds like cannibalism when you're listening to it. Jesus talks about, you need to drink my blood and eat my body to be one. And, and the Jews are just like, this is disgusting. What do we even do with this, right? And a lot of them were like, I'm done. This, this, this weird hippie from Nazareth, I can't get around what he's doing and what he's saying. And so they begin to leave him, but Peter didn't. John 666, how ominous is that? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? He said to Peter, and Jesus was asking the 12. And Simon Peter, Simon Peter is right there, straight up. And I just want you to see this man's integrity. I want you to get a feel for who this brother was. He was not a flake. He was strong of character, thick of bone, so to speak. And he looks at Peter, and he says, are you going to leave too, Pete? And Peter's like, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life, and I believe, we've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. I don't understand you. I don't know why you're touching lepers. I don't know why you're hanging out with prostitutes, but you are the Holy One of God. I have nowhere else to go. And so we see that Peter had an accurate and an inaccurate understanding of Jesus. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he couldn't turn to anyone else. But this Messiah was doing things upside down and backwards from the way that Peter expected. And this Messiah was certainly not embodying the victorious, conquering king portrayed in Daniel 9 and Daniel 7 and virtually every messianic psalm through the entire Psalter that Peter had grown up singing his entire life. This king was gentle. This king was surprising. This king was utterly unpredictable. Now, there's one other crucial scene Jesus is explaining that he's going to be opposed by the religious elite. So rather than the Pharisees who had been praying and trying to live a life to honor and bring back Messiah, Peter is hearing Jesus say, those guys are actually going to oppose me, the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees. And ultimately, I'm going to be killed by Rome, Jesus was explaining. And that, that for Peter was the straw on the camel's back. It was just too much. You're the Holy One of God. You're this long-awaited king. I grew up listening to Isaiah, Hezekiah, Amos, praying and singing the Psalter of this mighty king who's going to conquer. And you're telling me that my PhD pastors and prophets are, and, and professors, they, they are going to be the ones that oppose you. And then rather than kicking Rome out, they're going to kill you? For Peter, it just, he just couldn't do it. So he decides to take matters into his own hands takes Jesus kind of back to the woodshed. Matthew 16, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And this is where the cracks in Peter's understanding were really beginning to show. Instead of being commended for his allegiance, he takes Jesus aside. I will stand with you. You are the conquering king. Expecting Jesus to turn around and say, Pete, you're such a loyal brother. Thanks. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus had to actually rebuke 
the confusion that now Satan, this, this being that we meet in Genesis 3, we will talk about him at length in the duration of neighbor's church life. But somehow this being was confusing Peter even more. And Jesus didn't rebuke Peter. He rebuked Satan. He protected his brother still. Now at this point, most pastors and most teachers and most commentators that I read and listen to on, on Peter, at this scene where, where Jesus is rebuking Peter, most guys and gals, they begin to wax eloquent on the shortcomings of Peter. They begin to make fun of him. They begin to talk about his bravado, his impetuousness, his lack of understanding. And I'm telling you, I can't do it. Uh, this year, I, January, 1st, uh, January 1st, 2020, I will have been apprenticing myself to Jesus for tw 21 years. And I so understand Peter. Jesus of Nazareth, I have found him to be incredibly disorienting. I have found his ways to be so far from my ways. And I have found the way that he works in the world to not make any sense at all. I have found in 20 years now of trying to understand the mind of Jesus, trying to be like Jesus, trying to do what Jesus did, that he literally clashes with every other teacher and guide and sage and cultural influencer. He says the exact opposite of what every other teacher in this world says is the way of happiness and flourishing. When you really read Jesus and you really wrestle with Jesus, you're like, what you just said does not make any sense. This is so backwards. <laughs> That's not going to work. And I got YouTubers and Instagram influencers that are telling me that you're wrong too. Jesus' ways are always meek. The way of Jesus is usually unseen. It's usually done on the margins. And so Jesus, he looked to the inconsequential birds of the air and the unnoticed flowers of the field as marks of God's abundance. Meanwhile, you and I swim in a church culture that celebrates huge affluence and big, fast, shiny events really modeled after secular rock concerts, and that's the mark of God's favor. And Jesus is saying, did you see the flowers? That's God's abundance. And we're saying... Did you see the size of our LED screen? Nothing wrong with LED screens, nothing wrong with events. No, I'm, but I'm saying, I think if Jesus sat down in some of our churches, he would say, we should go look at some flowers. And it's disorienting for us. I think it's, I think it's too jarring. It's jarring for me. It overwhelms me. I want, I want an LED screen for our church. And Jesus says, let's go look at some flowers. Many in today's culture have mistakenly embraced political power as a means of multiplying God's kingdom in the world. For Jesus, though, there really is no such thing as the evangelical political right. It just doesn't exist in his mind. There are either people who are in his kingdom following him, or there are people who are not in his kingdom and of this world. And they tag Jesus' name onto their politics. Kingdom people, because of Jesus, we have to come to understand that power and position is categorically different than the way that we do power in the world. The major voices of our culture, they teach us to strive for platform and popularity and accolades. What Jesus did is he donned a servant's towel and he washed the feet of his motley crew of blue-collar workers, outcast, social zealots. And he said true greatness was to serve the lowest of the low in the unseen marginal places. That's just disorienting. 
We tend to, I'm just going to go keep going here, we tend to, collectively as a church, we tend to unquestioningly celebrate and love to see the enemy violently destroyed as Christians. And Jesus said, pray for ISIS. Love the terrorist. And in a military town like San Diego, that puts you on your heels. What does that mean for us? We say sex is play for adults. Sex has no bearing on human flourishing. Do what you want. You're free to do what you want, with who you want, when you want. And the only moral mandate of our current cultural moment is consent. Jesus' sexual ethic went beyond not only the physical activity, but to the very heart. He actually said, if you're lusting in your heart and with your eyes, you might, you're, you're committing adultery already. His sexual ethic was abrasive, hard, hard. And so all of these examples, and I could just sit up here and give you a million more. Jesus of Nazareth is jarring and disorienting. And what he does is he tends to shatter our self-made images of who God is. Jesus turns upside down our paradigms of success, our paradigms of power, our, our, our paradigms of flourishing and happiness, and our understanding of how we think the world should go and how we should heal it. And Peter's image in this moment of Jesus was fracturing. He was falling apart. But I want you to just keep reflecting on this. The man is falling apart. He's confused. He's disoriented. The teachings of Jesus are super hard. And Peter is this noble man of commitment. He, he's, he's not going to leave Jesus' side yet. But now we're reaching the closure of Peter. There were these deep, just like us, these deep, unseen fault lines within Peter's soul. Fault lines. And God wanted to mend those fault lines, those fractures, those unseen broken places. But for them to be healed, they would have to fall apart. Peter could go along with the facade of a healthy, put-together life and a commitment to Jesus, having all of these fractures and be ultimately weak and less valuable and unusable until he completely falls apart. And then Jesus could put him back together. And so in one of probably the most confusing moments of Peter's life, I've pondered this so many times, what this would be like to have Jesus tell you this, warn you that you're going to deny him. One of the most confusing moments of Peter's life, Jesus is trying to prepare Peter. I'm going to heal you, but you're going to break. I mean, you're going to, you're going to break. And Peter's just like, no, that's not going to happen. Luke, his passage, every synoptic gospel and John tells us about this scene. Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, there it is, you're going to turn back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and to death. And Jesus answered, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. Now, Peter loved Jesus. Peter was utterly committed to Jesus. What he did not know was the depths of his own weaknesses and his own inabilities. And Jesus did. And Jesus knew that once Peter had finally unraveled at the seams and his put-together life and his self-sustained commitment had completely been crushed, then Jesus would be able to get in there and like the Kintsugi masters, reframe, heal the scars with love and presence and blood of his own. On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, all the gospel authors talk about Peter being at the scene. 
So he was still committed. He was still trying to hold on. He's like, I'm going to go to prison with you. He's confused. He's scared. His warring, victorious Psalm 2 king is now being crucified by the Roman Empire. And one by one, these cracks of Peter's self-sustained commitment just appear, and he falls apart. Matthew 26, the account from Matthew. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. In other words, he starts cussing. I don't know who it is. I don't know this man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. The accent gives you away. <laughs> then he began to call down curses. So he gets very serious here in the, in, the Jewish, in the Jewish mind, calling down curses was no joke. And he's swearing to them, I don't know him. In this moment, the inability, the weaknesses, the flesh-driven commitment that Peter had to Jesus, it fails him completely, and he falls. This rooster crows, and then Peter, as the rooster is crowing, remembers that his friend had prepared him for this breaking. He was confused. Jesus, why would you even tell me that we're all going to leave you? I'm never going to leave you. I would never do that to you. And yet the rooster crows, and with every crowing of the rooster, Peter's soul just falls apart. And Matthew and every other author tells us that he went outside and wept bitterly. There was this moment of loss. So Peter's disorientation, his failed expectations, they were too much. And the confusion and the pain overwhelmed him. And nothing was going according to Peter's plan. In fact, everything was going about as wrong as it possibly could. And in that falling apart, as his tears were falling to the ground, it was like his soul was just shattered. But his tears were actually finally the beginning of Peter's restoration. His tears, his brokenness, the unraveling, that was where the real beauty and the real power and the real value was going to begin. Now, I want you guys to understand, this, shatter, this, this shattering of souls for us, let's just make application for us tonight. It takes many different forms, and it has many different names. So sometimes the shattering of a human soul, it's a long process over months and months, even years. And sometimes it's a single moment that just unravels us, and we're suddenly undone. The mystics, uh, St. John of the Cross, called this the dark night of the soul. Uh, there are modern writers out there that I recommend all the time. They call it the wall. Uh, I had a season in my life where I came to call this the void. The void, where it, it's this dark loosening of everything. Everything just comes loose. Now, a number of years ago, I had a dear mentor tell me during one of the most terrible seasons of my life. He said, Dan, I was probably 35 at this time maybe, and he said, Dan, you need to know something. Every leader, every man of God, every woman of God, they will always go through an extensive deconstruction before God rebuilds them and restores them. And then he added something that at the time just absolutely infuriated me. I'm in tears with my therapist, spiritual director, counselor, broken, weeping, angry about so much pain. And he says, Jesus is healing you, Dan. <laughs> I was like, no, he's not. He's killing me. <laughs> You're an idiot, Rich. This is so dumb. <laughs> Today, those are actually those words in the midst of seasons of unraveling that I'm in even one right now. They're actually a source of true comfort. In the void, at the wall, 
in the dark night, in the moment of falling and shattering, Jesus is beginning a healing process there for all of us. And really, the word, the catchword, the buzzword for today that I see in the church collectively is deconstruction. Now, just key in with me for a moment here. A little social commentary for us. Deconstruction right now is very, very in vogue in the church and in collective society. We swim in this culture where cynicism is the only respectable position to hold when it comes to authority. Yeah? And we're also taught that the only trustworthy thing that we have in this life is our doubt. And so millennials, who, by the way, are now getting close to 40, so they're not so much kids anymore. They've got kids. But Gen Z, they're coming up in the church. They're going to college, and they are bailing on the church as quickly as possible. We are literally seeing a hemorrhaging of the American church. When polled, for those that do those polls, the fastest rising number of claims on who we are is the nuns, not N-U-N's, habit-wearing nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, the non-religiously affiliated. And a huge population within the non-religiously affiliated are de-churched people, people who have said, I'm not doing this church thing anymore. I'm deconstructing. I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm deconstructing Jesus. I'm deconstructing what my parents brought me up in. Now, of course, this is a tragedy, but I, I want to take us into communion by recognizing that in light of Advent, in light of Peter's story, in light of this teaching, I am increasingly convinced that we are seeing the beginnings of a healing movement of God in the Western church and urban centers. I really believe it. There were two disciples that abandoned Jesus at the end of his life. Peter, and who was the other one? Judas. And for whatever reason, Judas never was Jesus's. I would never dare to try to explain the complexities of the human soul and salvation. We don't know why Judas necessarily did not return to Jesus like Peter did. But ultimately, Judas, we are told, was inspired by Satan. Satan literally entered into him as he betrayed Jesus, and it led Judas down a road of hard-heartedness and eventual suicide. And I do believe, and this may be hard for some of us to hear, but I do believe in this massive exodus that we're seeing from the American church, I believe in that population of people that are Judases. People that were in the church for whatever reason they were in the church, they had expectations, they had reasons, they had things that they were doing there. But when the rubber really begins to hit the road and the expectations that they had of Jesus are completely falling apart, the deconstruction process, complemented by satanic confusion, turns them towards hard-heartedness, and they leave the church never returning. John warned us, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, we can't know who Judas is. We can pray fervently for our own souls and our friends and family members that they are not in that space of hard-heartedness. But in this massive departure, and here's the piece of hope, Advent hope, I think what we're seeing is tons of deconstructing Christians who are Peters. I really do. I think we are seeing an entire generation of Christians that are terribly disoriented right now and confused. So who they thought Jesus was, 
or what they'd been taught Jesus was growing up in their church, like Jesus runs around with an American flag wrapped around him killing terrorists. Not true. Jesus is all about money and affluence and not true. And all of those images are just collapsing. All of these things are collapsing. And I think what we're seeing is people who are like Peter. And they've, they've left the church, but they're falling apart, and the fractures of their soul are, in, are, are breaking apart. And yet, like Peter, they are wanting to turn back to Jesus. And that is good news for us as a church plant, by the way. That is tremendously, gigantically huge good news. And I hope and pray that tonight, right now, as you're sitting there, that you have in your mind those humans that want to turn back to Jesus and have that reconstruction occur in their lives. Because whether we're in our own season tonight of just falling apart at the seams or we are praying for that family member or friend, what Jesus reminds us of at Advent is that he comes to restore Peter's in their confusion and their pain when we turn to him. But you and I, because we're here tonight, whether we're falling apart or not, we are the voice and the hands and the eyes of Jesus to look other people in the eye while their roosters are crowing. Roosters are crowing throughout the land. And you and I are the eyes of Jesus going to them saying, it's okay. Come back. Trust. So from Peter's story, what we read is he went back to Galilee to wait, which, by the way, is what Jesus told him to do. He goes back to Galilee. He's still doing what Jesus told him to do. He's just denied him. The roosters crowed. He's still going to obey Jesus. And in that place of those shattered dreams and that confusion and that uncertainty, risen Jesus comes to Peter to put him back together. And he does so in a passage that we read. He does so strategically like a surgeon repairing a broken body. So when Peter was denying Jesus, we're told by the synoptics that he stood by a charcoal fire. In the Greek, in the Greek there, there's only one other place where that charcoal fire language is used, those two particular words, and it's at this scene where Jesus lights up a fire and is baking fish. It's a charcoal fire. And so his restoration occurs around the same kind of memory trigger as the place where he denied him. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And every time, as his Savior is looking him in the eyes, Though he has denied him three times, with each question, Peter's reliving his denial, and he's looking at Jesus saying, you know that I love you. I don't know if the man felt shame in that moment. I don't know if he just felt like he was squirming under the guilt of it. I don't know if he was, with each question, reliving the traumatic memory of denying his best friend and his king. But what we see is Jesus strategically puts him in this memory-triggering place of breaking, and then he asks him, and Peter responds with honesty, yes, I love you. But after this third time, we see the key to Peter's real kind of Kintsugi master moment. Jesus asks him a third time, John 21, 17. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. He's overwhelmed because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Did you catch that? Lord, you know all things. What we see is that in this moment, the cracks of Peter's soul, they were literally being filled by total dependence on Jesus. The fractures were being mended with this, with a commitment that was self-aware and finally humble. Peter knew that he didn't even know himself fully. That's how broken the man had become. He's like, I don't, 
You've asked me three times, you know better than I know that I love you. It was this moment of repair with absolute, complete dependence on the wisdom and the way and the plans of Jesus. And the key for us as a church plant is Jesus restored Peter right in front of his friends. He didn't do this in private. He didn't take him aside. By now, all of his buddies and the 153 fish, they're all sitting around in a small group setting as Jesus is making Peter relive his denial, and then he's restoring him. And so it was Peter's community that heard Jesus' recommissioning of Peter's responsibility. And the point being for us is we will always fall apart in isolation, okay? Always. And we will deconstruct outside of the church. But when Jesus restores us, he does so in the church with us, with others that watch it happen, and we affirm what Jesus is doing, and we support the person being restored. That's why. Get into a community. Press into a community where you can talk about the fractures of your own soul and have the community stand around you and say, you know, Jesus knows about all of that. He knows the depths of it better than you do. And like Peter, you can just trust and say, Jesus, you know, and you know that I love you. We at Neighbors and the church in general needs to be a place where the deconstructing, falling apart can just be restored. And that's a long process for some. As we wrap up, this is the great hope of Advent. We're going to come to communion. That baby in the manger is not only wanting to restore your souls, but he's wanting to and is. He is restoring the fractures of our world. Each of us, as we come to communion tonight, we always have a choice to return to Jesus wherever we are. No matter what fear or hopelessness we feel, no matter how dis disoriented or confused, I think some of us are just worn out, just just feel like a rag doll that's just been shaken. Life is just like boom, boom, boom. No matter how tired, no matter, maybe for some tonight, you're on top of your game. Well done. <laughs> you're on the horse riding in, sunset behind you, lassoing everything. I don't know why that image is coming to my mind. <laughs> All I know is you're going to get bucked off your horse. Welcome to neighbors. There's the hope for you. <laughs> and when you do, there will be Jesus. There will be Jesus ready to pick you up, dust you off, and restore you. And the only response that we can give to him at communion tonight is, Lord, you know I love you. That's it. I'm tired. You know I love you. I'm so friggin' disoriented and uncertain. You know I love you. You know I'm completely overwhelmed. I have no ability and no way forward. You know I love you. And it's there that the cracks and the fissures of your souls are filled with such an intensity of love and such a brilliance of light that you literally are mended to go out and hold the Holy Spirit as a beautiful vessel and be the hands and feet as the cock crows, as the old King James would say, the rooster is crowing throughout the lands. And there you stand with your hands held out to a broken and fractured world. And your hands are filled with scars and gold. And you become this attractive thing filled with him. That is the incredible hope of Advent. Father, um, 
As we come to communion tonight, you, Spirit, are present and doing the mending work in the, tec in the text, in the stories, in the circumstances. I want to pray tonight for a community of surrender and that each of us, as we prepare to take communion, would respond by saying, Lord, you know my heart and you know that I love you. Tonight, as we prepare for communion uh, in our souls, bring to mind those who are deconstructing, but they're deconstructing as Peter, not as Judas. And we pray for the ones that were scared or Judas. We're so scared for certain friends and family members that their heart is just seeming to harden more and more. God, be merciful tonight. Be merciful as we come around the table together as a family. And I pray uniquely tonight for this, for this group of souls that you've gathered here tonight, that each of us would have a sense that, wow, in this room, all of us are fractured and broken, but we can each hear our king saying to us and to each other, do you love me? Lord, you know we love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, we love you. Take care of my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything about us. And together in this room, just like the disciples around the charcoal fire, we want to hear you say, care for my church. Accomplish the mission that I've given you. You are restored. Help us to support one another. And may you bring, may you bring many to our church and to churches throughout San Diego and the world to once again be restored fully and completely. In Jesus' name, amen.